Have you ever hit a place in your life that leaves you absolutely dumbfounded about which way to turn? Well, you're not alone. You're merely human, since every human on earth has at least one crossroad in life, a difficult life change that they need to either make or adapt to because that change happened to them. So there you are, you're scratching, you're wondering, you're worried. Well, don't be. Just listen and I will help you as I talk to author and certified life coach Jane Pollock about mastering the crossroads of life. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. Don't forget at the end to rate and review this, and also listen at the end of the podcast because there's a special offer from Bottom Line. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Jane Pollock, certified coactive professional coach, nationally recognized speaker, and published author of the incredibly brave and personal memoir, Too Much of Not Enough. Throughout her 38-year marriage, Jane was on a mission of transformation to overcome the self-limiting demons and fears that had her constantly feeling not enough. After years of study, Jane found her voice and transformed her life both personally and professionally. She now guides other remarkable individuals on their own journeys toward uncommon success. You can learn more about Jane and her work at janepollock.com and her great book, Too Much of Not Enough, is available, I guess, through the website as well as at Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. Jane, I always love talking to you. Thanks for being with me. Thanks so much, Sarah. So let's, I want to talk about not just your journey, but what really struck me as I was reading your book was the, the crossroads and the number of crossroads that we all confront throughout our lives. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking about the crossroads in my life. I don't know how many dozens or hundreds or thousands of them that any individual goes through. You know, decisions about personal life, about where to live, about career. It's just a constant crossroad that we're facing. Well, I think also, you know, every day you're choosing, do I do do this choice or that choice? It, It so happens that you catch me in the middle of what I'm calling a 90 and 90, where I'm choosing to be happy versus being right. Because I realize, looking back at my life, I have chosen from a very righteous point of view. My mother used to say, oh, Jane, you're holier than thou, which I hated, but I didn't understand. And now I'm clear that it was a level of protection for myself. So for 22 days now, I've chosen to be happy versus being right. I see where a situation is. And I decide, no, I think I'd rather really just get along with this and say, this is where you owe me, or I think I'm right. So I, I want to say that you know, thousands, millions, it's every single day we're at crossroads about how we want to show up in a relationship, in work, you know, in our lives. Yeah, and a crossroad, I guess, is is a, another word for a powerful choice. And That's, It's a great word for a powerful choice. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not even sure that people realize. I think we kind of meander through our lives and don't necessarily notice, notice the choices we're making or realize the power we have over each of those choices, which is why we're talking today. Yeah, there's an expression, you know, a lot of people go along to get along. They just go with the flow. They don't make waves. And then at some point they might say, why am I not happy? And they're not, you know, they're people pleasing. They're, you know, trying to make other people happy rather than themselves. And I'm all about not selfishly, but, you know, to make yourself happy first, the old oxygen mask. You know, if I'm taking care of myself, then I have so much more to give others. Totally. I think also there's this level of literally just a lack of consciousness. You know, I don't even know there's a conscious of being nice about it. I think they're just going through life and not seeing and not realizing. And, you know, one thing that that your book really shows is how conscious you were every step of the way 
of... Well, one of the things that I did is, you know, I let go of the buffers, like <clears throat> sugar and relationships that were addictive. And that way, uh, all I was doing was worrying about when was I going to get to friendlies again and when was I going to see this friend again, and friend and friendlies. And, um, and so I didn't have to feel the other things in my life. And I think that's what, unfortunately, addictions do is they cover up the everyday things. It's like, well, if I can get to my TV show, if I can, you know, get my, my glass of wine, my cigarette, whatever it is, then the other things, they, they can go through unconsciously. And I, I like the word woke because I think a lot of people haven't woken up yet. And once you're awake and see things, it's crystal clear. But people choose to be numb and asleep. Absolutely. All right, why don't you tell briefly, talk about your journey or your series of journeys. You know, your marriage, your, you changed your career multiple times, um, moving your home. Right. Like give give your overview. So I was right. married, just briefly, I was married 38 years to the same man. I, we met and married right after graduate school at Columbia Teachers College. And for me, I held marriage as a higher power. It's like, you, you know... You, you know, meet the nice Jewish guy, you marry him, you have children, and you have to teach so you have something to fall back on. And that was it. That was my mother's list of requirements. And I wanted to be the good girl, so I did that. But I didn't realize that there was something really missing, especially once the kids got older and that role was no longer holding us together. So what I did was I found relationships. I kept trying to replace what I was missing with female friendships, really trying to find a mother who would be nurturing to me as my mother was not. She was competent in many areas. We were, as my therapist said, we got good custodial care, but she wasn't a loving mother. And so I kept picking these surrogate mothers who were, who imitated her in some ways. They would show love and then they would neglect me. And that eventually got so painful that I went to a therapist and eventually got into a program of recovery for relationships that I said the most powerful thing I did was in 1989 when I said no to an eight-year friendship that had gotten very enmeshed and very toxic. And that was just opened up an entire universe to me. So that's now 30 years ago. Really powerful. During that time, I also said no to my mother. She was very aggressively critical and judgmental and pushing her way into my life, not in a generous way, but in a very needy way. And I said, Mom, I can't do this anymore. And for a year, when she was over 80 years old, I said, I can't do this. So that was the second most powerful thing. And then when my ex told me that there was another woman in his life, I was like, well, I'm not going to be in that relationship. So even though he was the one who made the environment, uh, you know, impossible for me to live in, I was the one who said, no, I, I won't do this. I think a lot of people live with the knowledge that they have an unfaithful spouse and they go along and they, they're numb and they, you know, numb out and they don't think about it because they want to, whatever it is, maintain the marriage or the illusion. And that was not tenable for me. So in uh, 2011, we got divorced after 38 years, which was shocking. It was shocking because I thought I would always be married. So there I am at 62 having to re- completely reinvent myself, except for my career, which came, you know, came along with me. But every, every idea I had about myself had to be redesigned. But your career had evolved different as well. You, you had been an artist, you'd been an art teacher, then you became an artist. Um, exactly. Then, uh, right, so. I did. I exhibited my work for the first time in the, in the early 70s, got immediate recognition for my work. A woman from Bloomingdale said, would you, do a, you know, would you do a workshop for us? I was in you know, all kinds of media. I was on the Today Show. I had a lot of recognition for this unusual art form. I did the Ukrainian Easter eggs. And that propelled me onto the platform talking about how you could turn your passion into a business, how you could um, be goal setter, marketing, and all that. 
And once I got on the platform, people said, oh, would you advise me? So I started, you know, I called it coaching, but really I was consulting and advising, and then I took a coaching course and got certified as a professional coactive coach, which I have been for, the, you know, for uh, since 2006 now, which has been great. So, you know, people say you morphed. I say, no, I evolved. I evolved, you know, because one thing clearly in my mind led to the other. Well, that's what I was just going to ask you. So as you were going through, and I want to go back a little bit to your mother and your and your husband, um, did you realize as you were along the way that you were you kept having these decision points or was it not until later on and you look back that you realize the crossroads that you went through right i had no idea i kept everything i did was for the purpose of saving the marriage i would go to a workshop at Kripalu. i went to therapy i went into 12-step recovery hoping that this would change the marriage but i married somebody who was a lovely guy who was in no way committed to changing uh, from a very early appointment we had with a, a couple therapist she said that, you know, he's chosen to be inside a box, which included the Mets, literature, teaching, Diet Coke, and, um, and watching sports. And as long as I was willing to be in that box with him, we would be fine. And I could still be there. But that box was way too confining for me. So, you know, as long as I attended to the marriage and, you know, having a child in uh, 1974 and then two more changed my view of womanhood, motherhood, myself where I became incredibly empowered as a mother and a woman to raise this child. And that was transformational to me. And the women I met, I started to form communities for the first time I never really had before. But the women of La Leche League, the Breastfeeding you know, Association of America, was incredible. And they were women who were in touch with their bodies and themselves and making choices that were very cutting edge. You know, to breastfeed for a long time was not popular. And to, you know, question a doctor, a pediatrician, or an obstetrician was not popular. But I went in with my list, and I say, I don't want silver nitrate in my daughter's eyes. I don't, you know, I want to leave the hospital the day I deliver. You know, and they would say, what medical school did you go to? But the women were saying, birth, giving birth is a natural process. It's not, you know, it's not an illness. So when I listened to them, and it made sense to me, everything I had learned before no longer made sense to me. And that was a scary place to be because I thought everything my mother said was true, as most people do, I think, until they're 18. So it's interesting, actually. It's almost like you started it out in your box, uh, you know, because we all have our boxes. We have our perceptions and our assumptions of what marriage is going to be like, what our career is going to be like, what our future is going to be like. And yet you had this, either you were, you, you were uncomfortable, so you were looking for something else, or you just were open to learning more. Um, well, I was in the box, and I, you know, one of the things I write in the book is, if you've ever been to a wedding or a, you know, a bar mitzvah or something, where all the couples are on the dance floor and they say, you know, who's ever been married five years or less, sit down, ten years or less, sit down, and I wanted to be the longest standing couple on the dance floor, and that was, you know, that was a fantasy that I had that that was the greatest thing you could have, whether my mother planted it in me or I invented it or it was father knows best, I don't know. But that became the, my, authority, my moral authority was keeping the marriage. It didn't matter that we weren't nurturing each other as, as marriages do. And I had a lovely six and a half year relationship where I was very nurtured. And it's like, oh, wow, I would have been a whole different person. I, didn't, I, I got financial support and my ex-husband did many things and, and he was a good dad. But he didn't support and nurture me, which I think in good marriages that happens. Um 
do, so here's a weird off the like kind of out of the box question but as long as we're talking about marriages and expectations and husbands do you think that most men are even capable of nurturing the way a woman needs i mean i always kind of view as i've, I've been married for 32 years i adore my husband we have a great relationship but i i expect certain things from him and there are certain things that i don't expect from him and i know like because i know who he is as a human and that that's there's, a really good question and i would not consider myself an authority on that by yeah. any means but I, I do believe that we're brought up differently but i think what i'm talking about is really mutual respect and yeah. i my my dad you know was not a very respect i mean he he didn't he didn't cherish us and i think that's a really important word he definitely didn't nurture us he was like i send you to camp i pay for your clothes what else do you want you know so that's not nurturing and I think my ex kind of had that, you know, like I, you know, I take care of all the bills. I'm, I'm here for the kids. What else do you want? And, and that was hard to explain. So it's a different, um, you know, I don't, I don't, he's not a nurturing guy and I chose him, you know, so right. I was looking for something different when I was, when I was in that market. Well, you were checking but, off um, the boxes that, that mom said. Did you ever, ex- totally. did you ever expect back then, could you ever have managed, imagined the woman you've become back then? No, yes and no. There were women who, you know, usually they were on a platform and it's like, I want to be like that. I want to be able to speak my mind. I want to be able to tell the truth. I want to be able to look somebody in the eye and have an intimate conversation. So I knew what I was attracted to, but I had no clue how to get there. And then, as I said, I started meeting women who were really powerful. And since I've been in 12-step recovery, I see people all the time who are role models who are present. You know, I think that's really what we're talking about is somebody being 100% present for you in a relationship. And when I say that, I don't mean that they're taking care of you, but when I'm talking to you as I am now, I sense that you're a really good, deep listener. You're not talking over me. You're not coming in with fixing me. And I gravitated towards that because that was like my mother. You don't feel that way, Jane. You couldn't possibly feel that way. Your brother doesn't, you know, he loves you and always fixing. And that's, you know, that's not a healthy relationship. Were you ever scared as you were bit by bit unpeeling and walking away from your historical core? I it, continue to be scared. <laughs> scared every day. And, and that's why, right. that's why right. I have faith, because that's what gets me through, either another person or a higher power, God. You know, I am, I'm scared every day because I'm always stepping out you know, it's just being alive is a little bit scary. Unless well, you're, you know, hiding in a cave, it's, you know, there are challenges. And I live in New York City. It couldn't be more exposing than that. You know, there's always going to be somebody bumping up against you in one way or the other. And you never know. So I, you know, I have, a, I have really strong boundaries. And I have people at my fingertips that I can consult any moment to say, ouch, this hurt. You know, will you validate me? Does, you know, does this seem right to you? Yeah, you've done an amazing job. I know I've I've seen part of your support group because I came to your book party. That's right. You and, you have and you have that was there there they were and that was you know I invited more people who couldn't come but that's what I rely on. Yeah. So you have you've done an amazing job and I think this is really important. Again, life is scary, right? So that at every step along the way, people, you know if I want people to, to take something away from our conversation today, it's to realize the power they have over the choices and being scared, as you say, is okay. Like life is scary. And to, but to become conscious of each of these choices and how to address them, confront them, 
you know, survive. And also, Sarah, to have a community. So yes. some people are, you know, it sounds like your family was your community, that your mom and dad had your back, your siblings have your back. You know, I'm, I'm really clear on that just from observing you and what you've accomplished. And that was not the case in my family. We were kind of cl- climbing over each other to get the light of our parents' attention. And they, you know, I wouldn't say they forced us to be competitive, but dinner was like, I got a 98 on this science test. I got a 99 on English. I aced the, you know, it, right. was, it was bragging. We were taught to brag. <laughs> and that was, you know, that colored, you know, who we became as adults. And I'm in the position now where that's not satisfying to me. That doesn't, it doesn't warm you at night, you know, where relationships and feeling good about myself are much more warming than getting 100 on a test or, you know, getting the contract signed. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's not what, what helps me sleep at night. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, there's, there's so many versions. There's so many people that, that lived in that house growing up and your house growing up versus the, you know, the other side where they lived in just this absence of attention whatsoever from parents. And again, we all deal... Well, that's why- that's why I think it's wonderful. You know, I was lucky. I, I kept looking for a family. You know, right. my I loved my summer camp. You know, that felt supportive. I loved college. But the, I kept graduating. You know, I loved La Leche League. I right. loved the Lamaze classes I was in. There, there was this intimacy. And then I, and I, my kids went to a community cooperative nursery school. And I kept graduating. And finally, I found, I actually wrote a letter to God. I said, I just wish there was a group of people where I could go and tell the truth. And then I wouldn't be such a burden to this friend of mine because I would save everything up for her. She was the one person whose attention I wanted. And then I found these rooms, you know, this fellowship. And people have it in their, you know, they might have it in their church or synagogue, their, you know, sisterhood or fellowship, whatever it is. But I think uh, some kind of a, a circle of people who are there for you. And what I like about, you know, you know, in my case, the fellowship, it's worldwide. I can go anywhere in the world and find a meeting and go and say, hi, I'm Jane. And this is, you know, this is the issue I want to talk yeah. about today. And people say, hi, Jane. Well, and I think it's a, a format to it. And important for people to know, again, when we're living in this kind of isolated social media, paranoia, anxiety, meanness, like at the surface that everybody sees, that there are these groups and there are these pockets that people can find to build those support groups. Um, and, and that's right. We all, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of something. And, you know, whose shoulders are you standing on? You had a loving family. You have a loving family. And I think that's ultimately, you know, the unit that would, would be preferred. If everybody had that, we wouldn't need all these other things. But that's not the case anymore. Well, and, and maybe it wasn't, you know. But, but I think that's, what, that's my foundation. And I looked and looked and looked, and then I found it. And it's like, thank God. So I've been going for 30 years to this, you know, which, which fills my soul. I'll go today. Yeah. Well, you know, I think. It, it fills my soul. Um, you know, I'm grateful. I did have an amazing family. You knew my parents. Um, I do. I do. Right. You're so but lucky. I am lucky. But you know, nobody, nothing's perfect. My father was extremely demanding. He was extremely focused on his career. He wasn't always so around either. He was, you know, focused on business and developing the business. So I think it's important to realize nobody's life is perfect. Everybody has their thing, and as much as it looks perfect from the outside, everybody, it's okay to have your thing, right? It's okay. There is no fantasy. I, there I, is no perfect mother. The there is no perfect sibling. It, deeply knew you were loved and cherished. I just yes. read Erin uh, Carr's memoir about her father, David Carr. And as busy as he was, and he was tremendous, you know, the New York Times uh, journalist, yes. uh, tremendously busy, she knew he adored her. I did not know that. Yes. I, you know, I still don't know that. Oh, yeah. It, you know, it, was, it wasn't expressed in, it was in either verbally or in acts of love. 
So, you know, as a child, I think we're all that attachment theory, you know, there's so much to it that was missing. So I was always looking to attach. Now I've attached to something that is international that I can go to and I can I can pray to, you know, something greater than myself and feel filled up. I can make a phone call. I can text somebody within this, you know, my fellowship and get a a response in five minutes. I mean, it's remarkable. So I found a replacement for it. I think if if everybody had something that they're attached to, we'd be a much happier world and not Facebook and not, you know, not... um, and have real support. So so as I was thinking about Crossroads, you know, I'm a very kind of visual, linear kind of person. And I realize there's almost a quadrant of crossroads that people have. There's the the slow evolution versus the sudden crossroad, right? So there's you transform slowly versus suddenly your husband shows up and says, I want a divorce, right? Or suddenly someone dies and you're suddenly single. Um, and then there's the self-initiated versus the foisted upon, right? So that- I love that. Right? I, lo- I, lo- I love that. That's, that's a great way of looking at it. You could borrow that in your future coaching. Um, Thank you. Um, Yeah, I mean, I just, I kind of wanted to draw this and then, you know, look at some of these aspects. We've talked now for a while about just how you transformed slowly. Again, that there were crossroads throughout. You weren't conscious each step of the way. You're not always conscious of this as a crossroad, but people realize that they've got conscious decisions to make in these slowly evolving pathways um, versus the suddenly life changed. And now you have to adapt. Right. I, I think a, a great uh, way to look at that is your body and your health. And for me, it was funny, you know, within the first six months of marriage, I developed some kind of dermatitis and I went to the doctor. You know, my body was responding. I was nervous. I was nervous in my marriage. And I didn't know that. I just thought I had some itchy thing and the doctor would fix it. Over the years, I developed a hiatal hernia. I had a slipped disc. I had um, rheumatoid arthritis. My body was sending me signals, and I'm a big believer in Louise Hay mm-hmm. and that the body is a messenger. Absolutely. And I was really trying not to pay any attention. But what was so interesting was with this eight-year relationship with this friend that was um, unhealthy and that was the first thing that I changed that was monumental in 89 was that she and I used to walk together. You know, we would take long walks together. And I became, with my back going out, I couldn't walk. So I thought, you know, there's something really interesting here. My body is preventing me from having the one way to communicate with this person, going on these, you know, three-mile walks with her. So to pay attention, I think often our body calls our attention, whether it's our heart. And if you know Louise Hay, she names every body part. Like if you have a shoulder thing, you know, what are you trying to shoulder? Is somebody a pain in your ASS? You know, it's like, what, you know, what can't you stomach? I got to tell you, when my, her book, ahead. her book, Heal Your Body A to Z, one of my favorites, which yes, it, is yes. that book. And so there's actually my, an app as well. Every, every ailment and every emotional I attachment. It. I use it with my clients all the time. People who have pain in their feet, fear of the future. What, what can't you step into? So I think it shows up in our bodies. And so I was becoming aware of all of this. And my ex was poo-pooing it. Oh, that's ridiculous. As my father would say, that was his favorite line. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, not you many people. So they would. There are those detractors. What yes. I was learning. Um, yeah, no, I. It's really fascinating. They're not always one hundred percent perfect, but it's really frightening how often it is in alignment. Um, They're really good indicators. Yes. I remember being at Carpalo, and a guy had these blistery things on his foot, and I said to him, "Do you know Louise Hay?" And he points and goes, "Yeah, fear of the future, fear of stepping out." Interesting. So it's yeah. you know, if you're aware of it, you know what what Wayne Dyer said is, if you believe it, you'll see it. 
And yeah. so, you know, once, once, you, once you're aware of it, it's like it's so evident. And I'm not saying it's 100%, but it's pretty reliable. And I also love there's a, a line from um, uh, Mindell, I forget his first name. Earl Mindell? That the, bo- the body is the midwife to the mind. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it happens first physically, but we don't, you know, sometimes we don't let it in. Often we don't let it in. So it's funny, actually, because I, you, you, you jumped to exactly what I was going to ask you about, talking to the body. And how do you know, for the, for the, for the self-initiated category of crossroads, where um, someone wants to come out on their sexuality, or they see the demise of their marriage, or they want to make a career change, how do they know that it's time to make that change? Like, you know, can we help people? Because they're kind of living stuck and struggled, and they're, how, how do I help them break through that? You know, I'll just speak for myself. What happened for me was I cleared my channels. I was such a sugar addict. It was like if I could get to friendlies, I didn't have to think about anything. When I let go of sugar, which was in 1993, so that's a long time ago, I started to get really clearer. You know, things hit me. You know, you get a gut reaction. So when I was in New York and I had separated from my ex and a friend said to me at intermission during the play, what's keeping you in Connecticut? In a second, I knew nothing. I was, that was a crossroads that I hadn't even thought about, but the way she initiated it, and she was somebody who had moved from Wilton, Connecticut to New York, and I thought, oh my God, I can move. I can move. And I, within a year and a half, I moved from Connecticut to New York. After 40 years in Connecticut, I made this gigantic move. So I think if your channel is clear, and the way you can get your channel clear is to get rid of the substances that are blocking it, whether it's cigarettes or alcohol or a codependent relationship or prescription drugs or whatever, shopping or the internet, uh, whatever, those are the things that block our true feelings. And often what happens is you get that feeling that's scary and you act on it by signing on or tuning in or whatever it is not listening to your body. The body will continue. I actually circled something. Um, there's a, a lovely sheet called uh, Rules for Being Human, and number four is a lesson is repeated until it is learned. A lesson will be presented to you in various forms until you have learned it. When you have learned it, you can go on to the next lesson. So my body just kept slamming me until finally I said no. And that's Wayne Dyer said, if you can't say no to the person, you have to say no to the relationship. And when I said that was the most powerful thing I did in my life was saying no to this friend who I adored, but she was making me feel bad. She wasn't making me feel badly. I was choosing to ignore her responses to me that were not supportive over and over again. Like, you know, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to be a bigger person. And basically she was giving me the message that she didn't value me the way I want to be valued in a friendship. So it was time to move on. And, how? and they're very clear. They're what I would always complain about. Can you believe she did that? Can you believe this happened? It's like, Jane, you know, how many times do you have to hit your head against the wall to realize it's you hitting your head against the wall. It's not the wall's fault. Um, you just made a, a passing comment, but I think it's so huge, the power of saying no when you're not used to saying <sighs> no. And so I'll tell you a funny story in my marriage. So my one of the dynamics in my parents' marriage was that my father would lose everything and my mother would find everything. And she took great <laughs> pride in it. And he would, you know, he had so many things on his mind. He could never find anything. She always knew where his keys were, the wallet, you name it, she could find it. So, of course, I bring that into my marriage. And where are my sunglasses and where's my wallet? And one day, many years ago, my husband said, where, do you know where my wallet is? And I wasn't being a jerk. I honestly didn't know. And I said, no, I don't. And it was so freeing. At that moment, I never worried about his wallet again. 
and that it's the turning point yeah i wasn't trying to be mean about it but i think that people who are used to saying yes or feel pressured to go along with it to learn to say no is so freeing and powerful i don't mean being a jerk about being no but sometimes it's okay well you're um but infantilizing somebody by by being that person for them you know it, it appears that you're a right-hand person but basically you're allowing them not to learn how to take care of themselves on some level and people may not want to hear that but it's true you know people like i know parents who pay their kids mortgage that's infantilizing to that person it's enabling them to continue a behavior and to not grow up and to move into maturity and i think a lot of parents do that i'm sure i still do that on some level with my kids but not consciously, the second they pointed it out to me, it's like, you're right, you're right. I don't need to do that for you anymore. Yeah. Well, I think, I, you know, find, finding your husband's wallet is a way of him not having to take responsibility of that particular, well, there's Sarah, she'll, she'll know. Yes. You know, and, and not pay attention on some level. But usually that's a, you know, a mask for some, you know, a, a greater dependency. Yeah. So he he's, keeps track of his wallet or I don't worry about it anymore. But I think there on the go. flip you're side, I love that. <laughs> on the flip side also is just, the saying no to create your own boundaries to realize that um this marriage isn't working for me or that this job that it's time for me to move on to a new job um and and also i have a client uh, who's in one of my groups right now and when we we met at uh, the iowa book festival writers festival it was really fun and she and i were having dinner together gonna have dinner and she said you know can you go now and i said well actually i need to go back to my room and meditate i i do tm and i meditate twice a day and I can meet you there at six. And she goes, okay. And she said it really annoyed her that I had to do this thing, you know. And you know, and then she then she flipped it. And she said, no, Jane knows how to take care of herself. Ask for what she needs. You know, I wasn't being obnoxious about it. I just said this is what I can do. And when you set boundaries with people, they get a little bit offended. But then, you know, if they think about it, it's like this is somebody who is modeling self care. So I really admire when people say I, I'm unable to do this. Here's what I can offer. And that's a very powerful stance. And I do that. My life is very full and very busy. So I know when I'm available and when I'm not. And I do say no a lot. Yeah, and that's okay. All right, so let's go back again to the whole process of that you think that, you know, the unease and trying to to, uh, confront the crossroads of some of these tough decisions. Is it helpful for someone? Because sometimes they just have disease, dis-ease, not disease. Um, And that but they don't not conscious of what's going on so that i'll call it to journal like to just become aware you know i think the whole concept of awareness in dealing with the crossroads of life is really important what do you think i think part of part of my issue was i didn't have i had this one person to say things out loud to we have to hear ourselves and that is the basis of uh you know 12-step recovery is that you you speak for a few minutes with no interruptions nobody cross-talking you nobody saying anything and you get to hear your own thoughts. There isn't that built-in mechanism in most people's lives. Families talk over each other, they interrupt, they offer advice, but to actually, and it's an exercise I do with coaching, with, I just led some retreats and I said, you're gonna sit shoulder to shoulder, you're gonna talk for you know three minutes, that person's gonna listen and all they're gonna do is nod their head and listen, they're not gonna offer anything. And people walked away, they said, that's remarkable. They had not heard themselves speak for three minutes, forever or for a long time. So I would say finding a trusted person. And sometimes it's not the people you think you could trust, like sometimes family members or even best friends may be jealous or may not want to hear the thing that's changing in you. So if there's a trusted counselor, a therapist, a coach, 
a group of people. I think you know religious organizations often often offer uh, like women's groups or something that are supervised and confidential and safe because safety is really important. And that's what I I needed a place where I could express what I thought without being told. No, you don't think that. Yeah. Now, now, how about on a pr- very pragmatic level? Like, if I'm going to make a significant change in my life, career change, um, you know, I think divorce has to be one of the bravest things that someone can do, especially when kids are involved. Um, but what kind of preparation does somebody need to do? Do they have to do homework? Do they, you know, like they, they can't just vomit one day and say, "I'm out of here." That they still have to be responsible in their life. So, how do they? How do you help somebody? You know, what advice for people making that change? Well. Uh, I, I was blindsided. We know when my ex yeah. said to me, uh, a woman in Maine has become very important to me. I was like, what? I had no idea. And, you know, the kind of funny thing in my book was like, I didn't know another woman would find him attractive. You know, I thought it was really, wow. And this has been going on long distance. That was like, it blew me away. But then I realized this was not going to be tenable. So we were seeing, it came out in a therapist's office, a couple counselor's office. And what I did was um, I asked that, you know, each of us talked to the kids. We didn't do it together, but talked to the kids individually and let them know what was going to happen. So I think to have some kind of consideration and care, it would have been wonderful if our family had gone to counseling together. I don't think that was on the table. Um, you know, I don't think it's too late. We're, we're a fractured family. It's 10 years later, and we're still a fractured family. I wrote very simply that instead of four addresses, we have five. And that makes for logistical nightmares. You know, Thanksgiving is coming up. I'm not sure if they're going to go see their dad. I know that this Thanksgiving we'll be together. I'll be together with the kids. But it's very hard. And there are books, but I didn't want to read books on divorce. My kids, I'll say my kids were in their 20s and 30s when it happened. So it's a whole different ball game when there's custody, when there's a living situation. They were all grown and gone from home, and two of them were already married. So we didn't come up against that. But it's still very awkward, and we don't talk about it. And, you know, in my book, literally and figuratively, I like to talk about things. How is this impacting you? And they're not. They're not. And I am respecting that, that they're not comfortable talking about it. Yeah, so now, and in this case, this was, so one, this was a, one of my quadrants of it was sudden, and it was foisted upon you. And how do you, when someone has it foisted upon you, be it, you know, a divorce or death, you know, sudden death, or you've been fired at work. How do you pick up those pieces? How do you find the strength to move on? Like all, like your world just literally blew up on you. Yeah, my advice and what I do myself is to get quiet, to really get quiet, whether it's going off by yourself. And I'm not saying for a year, I'm saying like two or three days. There was a woman who I knew from one of my meetings and she said it wasn't until her brother stopped talking to her. She was very overweight and she had driven everybody away with her food habits. And he finally said, I can't do this anymore, which I think are the famous last words that get people to change. I can't do this anymore is such a declaration. And she said it was only when he left that that still small voice within me was able to be heard. And I, I do believe that we all have a voice inside, inside us. And I think for me, it's you know how I hear the greater guidance. I call it God's gut voice. It could be nature, mother. You know, The universe is speaking is to actually get quiet, to put aside all the substances and just let that wisdom speak from within because I think that's I think our connection to each other is all that higher power inside of us and when we can get quiet and listen to it the wisdom is right there you know it's like stay where you are move don't do anything let him be let it go you know there'll, there'll be some profound 
message that is quite clear and quite loud if you allow yourself the time and space to hear it. Yeah, and you know, it's tempting to become a victim in these situations. And oh, very, because you know, the society will you know, wrap itself around you because we're all looking to take care of victims. That's why I was, you know, all my friends, you know, were adult children of alcoholics, you know, like, oh, poor Jane, oh, your mother, oh, this, you know. Right. And then when I, when I stopped being the victim, you know, I changed friends, and many of them fell away because if they don't have somebody to take care of, caretaking is a huge, um, you know, industry for adult children of alcoholics because they'll take care of everybody else, put themselves last. And when I stopped doing that and learned that I could care for myself, that's, that's really empowering. Right, and victims have to have the strength to realize. And I think somewhere deep inside that everybody really knows, and you're, as you said, when you get quiet, secretly you know who you are. You know when you're cutting corners. You know when you're being a victim. You don't want to confront it, but I, I think I secretly you do. I would say that my mother, and I, I think she right. had a mental illness. I mean, after my right. father died, she was hospitalized three times yeah. for bipolar. So I don't think she could. Yeah. I, I don't think she had that capacity. She had to make, you know, she, (laughs) when she got out the first time, she had electric shock therapy and all that. And uh, she said to my sister, you know, can you bring me something to eat? And my sister said, what would you like? She goes, anything you bring will be fine. You know, and this went on and on. And my sister comes and brings her a chicken sandwich. And my mother goes, you bring me chicken? You know, like you (laughs) you couldn't get it right. She had to be that victim role. Right. And so I think some people are incapable of looking at themselves honestly. And unfortunately, my mother was one of them. So that's that was my role model. So I had to really learn. And there there, there are some great expressions. You know, there are no victims, only volunteers. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So I, you know, I began to realize, oh, I have a role in this. Yikes. And that was when I really began to change because I didn't want to be the victim. And, I, and that meant my opening my mouth and saying to my friend, it doesn't work for me when you break a date five minutes before we're supposed to see each other. When you say you yeah. can't walk and you have to do this, that doesn't work for me. Well, and I think, you know, aside from somebody then being mentally ill and truly incapable, um, you know, people have a lot more power than they realize. I talk about that all the time. That's kind of one of my beliefs in everything that we do with Bottom Line is to help people find their power, find their strength. And I think, you know, how many times have you seen someone who's been, um, again, a suddenly widowed or suddenly fired, and you think they're going to puddle? And they don't. Like, this this strength comes up. And you and I were talking before about, um, I was visiting, visiting someone this this weekend who widowed, I thought she was going to puddle afterward, and she has found a whole new group of friends, whole social, not that she doesn't, doesn't miss her husband, but this whole new person has evolved out of those ashes and never would have expected it, but suddenly confronted with a situation, and it all comes out. That, that gives me so much hope. I love that. I just saw yesterday the uh, New York Public Library allows you to watch um, Broadway shows on video. And I watched The Man from Oz with uh, about Peter Allen. Love that show. By Hugh Jack. It was fabulous. Phenomenal. And so Peter Allen was, I didn't know, he was married to Liza Minnelli. Yes. She dumps him, kicks him out of the house. He's fired from the whatever work he was doing. So there he is, homeless, divorced, and, you know, and no job. And that was when he wrote whatever, you know, the next some best-selling, you know, Oscar-winning music. So there is something about, you know, people say before the breakthrough is the breakdown. So here you're giving illustrations of, of the breakdown and trusting that the universe isn't trying to destroy you, but really taking out everything. There's a Zen saying, when my barn burned down, I could see the moon. 
that there's something, some structure that has been decimated so that you can have a new vision. Yeah. Now, some people, so one last question for you. Um, that some people, again, they, they kind of have this inkling that they, they know they need to change their lives. So now they're in a, now I'm back to the evolver quadrant, right? The self-initiated <laughs> evolver quadrant. I just, I'm going to like make this whole big thing, right? We're going to initiate this to the, to the co- coaching industry. Um, but the self-evolving, uh, self-initiated evolvers, they know they need to make a change, but they don't know where to go or they don't know how to start. Um, are there any, you know, you, is, you talk to me about, you've got your life wheel, your wheel of life tool that you use yes. with your people. Um, is that, or are there tools that somebody a, can use to start? It's a great tool. Right. So for, for the listener, it's a circle that's divided into eight, eight sections and you can make the sections up, but they're, uh, money, significant other, health, physical environment, fun and recreation, friends and family, career, personal growth, spiritual. And you can look at, take a snapshot of your life. Where are you today? So, for instance, for me, um, significant other, I'm at a zero. I have nobody. I'm not dating anybody. I'm not interested in dating anybody. And it's just sitting there as a zero. If I wanted to, you know, I could look at my online profile. I could, you know, re-up match. I could do something. I'm not that interested. But other things like friends and family or personal growth, you know, I'm a nine or a ten. I love that. But the idea is to look at, you know, where are you, where are you and what, where would you like to bump it up, you know, a, a fraction or a lot. And I think dividing your life into categories, you know, how's your health? And I think your health is such a great indicator of what's happening in your life. It, or it could show up as money or it could show up as your physical environment. You know, if, um, if your house is a mess, if you're a hoarder, if, you know, you can't, you know, see to the front door, maybe that's where you begin. Clear one box. I have a client who cleared six inches from her file drawer. She's ecstatic. She's inviting people over. It's wonderful <laughs> because we're, we're looking at it. What, right. you know, what's blocking you? And there's so many categories you could look at, but those are the right. eight you know, pretty standard ones. Yeah, I love that. And then, again, using you as a role model of finding different support groups that, that can help be there as you work to change, change whatever I remember hearing a guy once. It was so funny. He said, I get out of, you know, I wake up in the morning, I meditate for 20 minutes, I, I read passages from all of my spiritual readers, I get on my knees, I call my sponsor, I eat a, you know, an abstinent breakfast. He goes, and that's just to get out of the door. <laughs> I love that. It's like, me too. Me too. That's how I ground myself. And, and then I go to a meeting and, and that's how I ground myself so that I am filled up. My cup is full. And then I have lots to give. Yeah. But, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I wake up with my mind racing like, you know, I didn't hear from her. Does she hate me? Why is that? You know, it's just like stop the noise and, well, yeah. you know, connect, Thank- connect thankfully, with myself. Thankfully, I don't wake up with that one. I wake up with the, oh, wait, I got to do this. No, I got to do this. No, I got to do that. Right. All right. Same I've, thing. I've got the list same, of the, the uh, shoulda, right. woulda, couldas. Gerbil, gerbil wheel. Same exactly. Thing. Very busy right. gerbil wheel. All right, Jane Pollock, you are amazing. Your book, Too Much of Not Enough, is an inspiration. And thank you so much. Website, janepollock.com. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Sarah. Wonderful to talk to you. I'm talking to author and certified professional life coach, Jane Pollock, about how to face the crossroads that we all deal with in life. Whether of your choosing or being thrown into a life-altering situation, significant life change requires emotional fortitude as well as a great deal of practical planning. Jane has been providing Bottom Lines readers with insights into her own life changes and practical advice on how to create a new world for themselves for many years. Her insights appear regularly in our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, which is filled with information from America's leading experts on not just how to change your life path, 
but on detailed aspects of your life, including travel, the best insurance coverage, living healthier, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.